Let us begin in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us, and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, welcome to another edition of Seeds of Truth. This is your host, Joe Holcraft, coming to you from KKXX Studios, Chico Life Radio, 104.5 FM and AM 930. It is great to be with you another Tuesday evening where we are set to continue and really wrap up our exploration into the book of Genesis. And before we jump into our final program, I did just want to continue to welcome all of you who are taking time out of your busy schedules to join me here in the friendly confines of Chico, California. It really has been a great joy for me to journey with you in this great narrative that is the book of Genesis. I'm looking at my grid here, and I do see people listening, folks listening in the countries of Canada, Mexico, Argentina, Brazil, Chile, Italy, France, Spain, Portugal. I also see Croatia, India, China, and some countries in Africa, Nigeria, Kenya, South Africa. It is a great joy that you are taking time again out of your busy schedule to join me here in Chico. My friends, 88 programs slash podcast, and 344 days later, (laughs) we have arrived at our final reflection into the book of Genesis. I actually went back into my archives to make sure that it was, in fact, the 88th program, and it was, in fact, the 344th day, right? This has been a long journey. And as promised, this evening will be a time to answer not only your questions, but also offer up some closing thoughts. Now, the thing of it is, most of your questions were tied to how we might better understand the book of Genesis in relationship to the other books in the Bible, okay? Um, And if they weren't tied to that, maybe I directed you to previous programming where your question might be answered. That being said, as I was reflecting into your series of questions, I thought maybe this evening can be best served by having my closing thoughts tied to your inquiry and inquiries about the role that Genesis plays in better understanding not only salvation history and the Bible as a whole, but also particular to how the Bible ended. So, that being said, picking up really where we left off with our discussion yesterday, uh, because in the end, the end of the chapter, I think, offers a clue to bigger picture stuff. So with that, we have come to the end of an era and the end of an epic book in bit of a strange area. And what do I mean by that? Well, <laughs> two funerals do not seem to be a very bright ending for a book. I mean, do you agree with me? <laughs> right? Man's origin began in the garden of perfection and beauty in paradise. And here it ends, we could say, in two coffins. One in Canaan with Jacob, and another in Egypt with Joseph. You might be asking yourself the question or, or saying to yourself, what a dismal conclusion. If you were to put a contemporary spin on this matter, one might say that Moses' book would not hit the bookshelves of Barnes & Noble because, well, we like happy endings. But you and I both know, my friends, if we were to probe deeper, that Genesis chapter 50 is not the end of the story, but only the end of the book of Genesis. And this gets, I think, to the heart of some of your questions. 
Moses himself has yet four more books to write. And we also know that God himself has ordained 68 more books before the final chapter of the final verse is written. And what is beautiful is that the final chapter of the book of Revelation, where do we return? Well, where it all started. You see, this is why you have heard me say on so many occasions throughout the years here on Seeds of Truth that you have to interpret one verse in light of the other, one chapter in light of the other, one book in light of the other, essentially whatever you're studying in light of the whole. So if you read the book of Genesis and you come to the end of it disappointed because Joseph died, that would be a misinterpretation because you are to see Genesis chapter 50 in the light of just not Genesis chapter 49, but also moving forward in light of the book of Exodus. And for that matter, the book of Revelation. Because if you're looking for the happy ending, there is where you're going to find it. Just as the story started in paradise, so it ends in paradise. What do we read in Revelation chapter 2, rather 22 verses 1 to 5? And he showed me a river of the water of life, clear as crystal, coming from the throne of God and of the Lamb in the middle of its street. And on either side of the river was the tree of life, bearing twelve kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit every month, and the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. Hmm, that's an interesting verse for another radio program. Well, I think I explored that right in my study on the book of Revelation. Anyhow, John continues in Revelation chapter 22, And there shall no longer be any curse. And the throne of God and of the Lamb shall be in it, and his bondservants shall serve him, and they shall see his face, and his name shall be on their foreheads. And there shall no longer be any night, and they shall not have need of the light of a lamp nor the light of the sun, because the Lord God shall illumine them, and they shall reign forever and ever. Amen. Paradise in the book of Revelation, just as we started in the book of Genesis. So death, Moses would have us learn, is not the end. Is that not what Jacob had foolishly believed for many years? That is why he was so eager for it to come, right? He looked forward to death at the end of his earthly woes. It wasn't until his time in Egypt that Jacob came to a very different view of death. No longer did he consider death the end of everything? Even if a man were to lose his cherished son, as God had commanded Abraham to sacrifice his own son Isaac, God could raise him again too. There was life after death. What's that um, passage that comes to us in the letter to the Hebrews chapter 11? If you have your Bibles out, why don't you now go ahead and turn to Hebrews chapter 11 verses 17 to 19. I think I may have mentioned this passage before when we were studying Isaac. Chapter 11, verse 17 reads and following, By faith Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. And he who had received the promises was offering up his only begotten son. It was he to whom it was said, In Isaac your seed shall be called. He considered that God is able to raise men 
even from the dead, from which he also received him back as a type. So my friends, Jacob had come to see that even if God did not resurrect the dead in the way Abraham expected him to raise Isaac, there is still life after death. Have we not talked about the significance of how the great patriarchs have died, satisfied with life? What did we read in Genesis chapter 25, verse 8? And Abraham breathed his last and died in a ripe old age, an old man, and satisfied with life. We explore this in the Hebrew, right? And he was gathered to his people. How about Isaac in Genesis chapter 35? And Isaac breathed his last and died and was gathered to his people, an old man of ripe age. And his sons Esau and Jacob buried him. And of course, Genesis 49, that which we spoke of last week, when Jacob finished charging his sons, he drew his feet into the bed and breathed his last and was gathered to his people. That sense of being satisfied that deep contentment, that deep peace. Brothers and sisters, we are looking in all the wrong places to be satisfied, to have our thirst quenched, if in fact we are looking for the world to quench that thirst. You see, my friends, Abraham, Isaac, and certainly eventually Jacob came to see that the only satisfaction can be found in God. This is what St. Augustine meant when he said, my heart is restless until it rests in thee. Our hearts will be restless until they rest in God. They will be unsatisfied. The ache will still be there. Only in God can we find that holy longing satisfied. Why? Because we were wired for God. You have heard me speak on numerous occasions of this call to be a mystic, which is no more than entering into the mysteries of Christ. The church is often defined as the body of Christ, the assembly of believers, the congregation of and for God. And all of those are fine and well definitions of the church. But the first definition for the church for St. Paul is that, no, we are not just the body of Christ, but the mystical body of Christ, because in baptism, we are incorporated into the mystical body of Christ. And so if we are going to be satisfied, we have to enter into the mystery of Christ. This is one of the overarching themes that comes to us from St. Paul. All you have to do is read St. Paul to best understand that. So my point here is, if you want to be satisfied, if you want to go to sleep in peace, then understand this, we can only do so in the light of God. We are wired from God, therefore our lives should be for God, anywhere and everywhere. I recently explored the importance of burying the dead, huh? And among my points made was that by entering into the corporal work of mercy, burying the dead, we might come to understand that the way you, we, view death, makes all the difference in the world. What do I mean? Well, if death is the end of everything, then there is not any need to seek heaven or to shun hell, right? If there is no life after death, 
the world is right when it says that we should eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow we die, because in the end, what else is there? But, but if we view death as a beginning rather than the end, then what lies after death must surely compel us to face eternity squarely before death. And once we are rightly related to God by faith in His Son, we need not fear death, right? We need not avoid talking about it. And in one sense, we can even welcome it. St. Francis of Assisi would speak so favorably of death, huh? Sister death, death which is so kin to me, that which I cannot avoid. Death promises us a time when we shall be intimately and eternally with God and with those in the faith who have been separated from us by death. One of the, oh, not so much question, but observation from one of you out there. I think this came to me from North Carolina. You were reflecting into how one day you might meet Joseph, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, all those figures we've been talking about in the book of Genesis, Sarah. Yeah, sure, why not? Imagine that can be something life-giving. That yes, these figures we have been talking about are not mythological figures, are not fairy tales. That someday, God willing, we will actually meet the likes of a Joseph. And how fun is that? <laughs> I just love that. Those who we read about, just not in the Bible, but also anyone who has gone before us who we might uh, look favorably upon, that one day we might meet. I just dig that. I think that is so cool and certainly something that should encourage us to be the best version of who God is calling us to be. Huh? What do we read in the Gospel of John? Let not your heart be troubled. But believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you, for I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may also be. John chapter 14, verses 1 to 3. So, Maybe that's an important scripture verse for all of us as we, in this final evening together, reflect upon the book of Genesis and what it ought to have us thinking about, death. And that's okay. Do you notice how candidly both Jacob and Joseph spoke of their death? That is not so with unbelievers. I mean, really think about it critically. Unbelievers avoid the subject, I dare say, with a passion. I mean, is it a coincidence that all kinds of uh, euphemisms are, are employed so that death's realities need not be faced? I mean, really think about this. We don't speak of the dead, but of the departed. We don't speak of the buried, but the interred. People don't even die, they pass away. We don't bury the dead in graveyards, but in memorial parks. You see... We've taken all of this language that surrounds death, and to soften the blow, I suppose, I don't know, we've come up with these euphemisms that, that are more inviting. But the question that begs to be asked is, what? Why? The tragedy with this effort to deny death is that those last few days or hours 
are spent in what but deception. So rather than say our farewells and, and use our dying breath to speak words of lasting importance, what do we dwell on? Maybe our trivial pursuits, which seem safe, safe and remote from such unpleasant matters as death. And rather than facing the eternity which lies only a breath away, we carefully avoid it. What does St. Augustine say? What have I talked about here? Upon death, we have an extraordinary grace, the grace of conviction, the grace of belief, the, the grace of the reality that, that is what is before us. You know, most believers, hopefully, should not fall into the trap of denying death or avoiding a, a frank discussion about it. But there is a way in which we can all lose the joy of those last moments. I suppose there are some Christians who would say that sickness and death need not be endured if we would only have the faith to be healed. Oh, God can and does heal. And you and I should be grateful for that. But there is no promise of healing or deliverance from suffering for all. As we have talked about in the past, and as I have explored in the past, maybe in our last days, if in fact those days are filled with suffering, we might proclaim the gospel of suffering. This is what St. John Paul II would remind us of. He spoke of it just not in his last days, but in his last years, I think as early as 1993, 12 years before his death, as he was struck with Parkinson's disease, he said it was time to proclaim the gospel of suffering, that suffering has redemptive value. That's what St. Paul is talking about in Colossians 1.24, when St. Paul says, offer to God your suffering, for in it we build up the body of Christ, the church. What is St. Paul saying there? But that God, in his infinite mercy and love, would take a gift from you and I and use that gift to shower upon others, restoring others, bringing others back to spiritual life. There's great power in suffering when we unite it to the cross, actuate it in union with the cross. Actuate comes from the Latin actus, to draw out, to bring forth. When we actuate what we do to the cross, we bring forth, we draw out, well, but the best version of who we are. In suffering is power. And Paul wanted us to see that, most especially when you put this within the context of death. So as we look back into these last 14 chapters, as we look at the death of Jacob and Joseph, what is it that we discover? But that death is not the end, but only the beginning. Stylistically, really, there is a reason why Moses concludes this historical narrative in such a manner. Yes, death is at the end of this book. But the whole point is that there is more to the story. So just as the end of the book of Genesis ends with death, and our life ends with death, so are we to see that there is more to the story than the book of Genesis, so are we to see that there is more to the story than our death. What else could be said in this vein or current of thought? Well, maybe that Joseph's brothers, like Jacob until his final days, felt that death was the end. We should look to Joseph's brothers ever so briefly because they believed that God would care for them only so long as Jacob lived. 
They came to learn that God's care was certain when neither Jacob nor Joseph were around. You see, God's program will never be contingent upon the presence of any one man. God's program for you and I will never be contingent upon the presence of any one organization. What did Jesus say? I will build not a church, but my church. And lo, I will be with you always in that church. And here again lies the importance of entering into the mysteries that the church bears witness to, the sacramental mysteries that the church bears witness to. God's plan for you and I is as certain as he is sovereign, and it is as enduring as he is eternal. Therefore, it is absolute. And we can reason this, right? We can reason that God is absolute because the moment you say that there's no one such thing that is absolute, you just made an absolute statement. There's no way of avoiding that simple truth that there's no such thing as an absolute. It is impossible to speak otherwise. And I I don't mean to get too philosophical here, but it's important for us to realize that as we talk about God's sovereign care and his eternal plan for you and I. Now, if you were anything like me, maybe all of this subject matter we are talking about right now, especially as it relates to death, you would just simply prefer to put off. (laughs) It is too negative. It is not life-giving. But I would suggest to you otherwise. I would suggest to you that to reflect upon that which we cannot avoid, death, can actually be very life-giving. And this is why we pray for the gift of faith. What do we hear in the gospel? Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. By the grace of God, implanted in our soul was the gift of faith at baptism. And hopefully we've been nurturing that gift, that great moral virtue, that we might rise up in in time of conflict and, and look death squarely in the eye and say, I welcome you if this is in fact what you have for me now. What does Paul say to the church of Corinth? Flip your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Verses 55 to 58. O death, where is your victory? O death, Paul says, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord knowing that your toil is not in vain in the Lord. Therein lies great wisdom from St. Paul. And as we are running out of time here, maybe we pause and dwell ever so briefly on that word, wisdom. St. Thomas Aquinas writes that all wisdom begins with a vision from the hilltop. He says that because from the hilltop, You have access to the higher ground. And the higher ground allows you to see what? But the water beyond the water, the rock beyond the rock, the trees beyond the trees, the higher ground allows you to see how all things are interconnected. Wisdom is like that. Wisdom is 
a taste for the whole. Wisdom is an inclination for the whole. Wisdom is once you are in relationship with God, you begin to see things as they are intended to be seen. And for that reason, wisdom is always pure. Because as the Beatitude reminds us, <laughs> blessed are those who are pure in heart, for they shall see God. Brothers and sisters, what does the word Genesis mean? But beginning. The book of Genesis is the first book in the Bible. It is the beginning of the story of salvation history. But as it is the beginning of the story of salvation history, we could also say in the light of that truth, as we read the book of Genesis, may it be the beginning of a better understanding of our story, our role in salvation history. Elsewhere, you have heard me talk about this language of being on a stage, the stage of salvation history, that Jesus Christ entered into our temporal reality, that Jesus Christ entered into history. And as he did, he gave us the prime shining example of how to be human. He is the protagonist of the great story of salvation history. And as he is, we follow his lead. We use him as a mirror and how to better understand who we are. Just as Jesus Christ illumined the book of Genesis, so does Jesus Christ, as we read the book of Genesis, illumine our story. How we might fulfill our role on the stage, the stage of salvation history. Brothers and sisters, people are watching. And we're not actors. Don't get me wrong. I'm not talking about an act. No. But that which is very, very real. The most real story there is. What you and I do each and every day. People are watching. And above all, God is watching. Not as an accuser or some punitive policeman, but as one who calls himself Father. And therefore... He is watching you alongside of you, intimately with you, holding your hand. God meets us exactly where you are at, we are at, and walks with us exactly as he is. And this, my friends, is a point we should lean into. He walked with Adam in the garden. And even as Joseph breathes his last, is he with him from the beginning to the end of this book, this great and epic book, do we learn that lesson, that God is presence. Amen? Amen. All right, let us close with a word of prayer. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. All glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. Amen. And God bless you. Thanks for listening to Seeds of Truth, heard every evening, Monday through Friday at 5.30 here on KKXX. If you'd like to hear this program or find out how you can help support Seeds of Truth, the website is joeholcraft.org.